Welcome. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich. Conversation alive and well right here on this podcast with some outstanding people stopping by, including today's guest, Julie Skolnick. Now, I've known Julie as the founding artistic director of Mistral Music here in the Boston area. It's a chamber music series that since 1997 has been known for its breadth of artistry and innovative programming. Along with being a terrifically talented classical musician, it turns out that Julie Skolnick is one heck of a writer. She's penned a memoir called Paris Blue, a memoir of first love, and we're going to be talking all about it. With Paris and classical music as your backdrop, Paris Blue is a book you won't be able to put down. So let's begin the conversation with a lovely and talented lady as I invite Julie Skolnick to join me on mic. It's called A Memoir of First Love. It's called Paris Blue by Julie Skolnick, as mentioned in the introduction. And I thought, uh, oh my goodness, it's about romance and Paris and all that. Not the typical Jordan Rich read on a Sunday afternoon. I could not put this down. And I'm not just saying that because I know you. It was fabulous. Congratulations. Oh, Jordan, thank you so much. I think that has to be the single best thing that has come of this is not just that it took me 40 years to finally see this story in print, but the response from people and and right across the boards, across boundaries of every kind, meaning age, um, gender, uh, sexual orientation, uh, people are all telling me that it was a, a two session read. And that makes me so, so happy. I mean, it would have been one thing, I would have been happy to publish it, but then I, easily could have had people tell me that, well, I started it, but I never got around to finishing it. So I'm, I'm really happy. I'm happy you said that. Thank I, you. I will tell the listeners and the future readers that uh, there's so many elements and aspects to this, including the cultural side of things, which we'll talk about, the beauty of Paris back in the 70s and today, the music. But uh, it is it is a story that has an arc. And when you have an arc that involves romance and then deflated romance and oh my god it just it just there's, there's suspense julie i couldn't believe it but let's let's back up a little bit because we'll get into paris blue and what goes on but i i love the story of you growing up was it maine correct is that where you're from and the yes. the cultural uh knowledge and breadth of introduction from your parents was beautiful why don't you share that with us Thank you. Oh, well, that's, that's so nice of you to mention that. Well, um, I guess just to tell your listeners who I am is I'm a professional musician and um, I've been running a music series in Boston for the past several decades. And and when I was a little girl, uh, I was in the state of Maine. And I think that both my sisters and I um, you know, were surrounded by a lot of music in the home. And I think it seeped into our DNA and, you know, had a was largely responsible for the career paths that we took. There was always music playing in the house, and my mother also introduced us to, you know, beautiful writing and Dylan Thomas and Yeats and Oscar Wilde fairy tales. So I think that definitely colored my world after that. And, um, yeah, I was very lucky to grow up in such a, a warm and uh, culturally rich Home. I felt very much akin to that because um, my father particularly was and is still a classical music fan, loves it and promotes it. And, you know, not to the extent where he studied music at the academy or anything. But uh, so I was introduced when I was probably um, 
six, seven, eight years old when all the other kids were collecting the Beatles records. I was collecting sonatas. <laughs> oh, I so. did not know that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. not it's not about me. Let's talk about talk right. about you. So what brought you to Paris, the the educational experience? Talk about that. Okay, so I was enrolled in a liberal arts college in Connecticut called Wesleyan University. And like many of those uh, schools, there's always an exchange program, a school year abroad program. And for me, it seemed like a very natural fit because there was a, a flutist that I wanted to study with. And I thought I could enroll in the Wesleyan program and study with this guy, a big master flutist, and kill two birds with unstone, you know, get my degree, uh, get credits towards my degree and still have the, the flute education that I was looking for. So that's how I ended up there at age, um, at age 20. And there you are in a foreign country in a beautiful city that everybody has some inkling of understanding based on movies and music and all that. But what did you know about Paris and what was your French language ability at that point? Um, oh, that's a great question. Well, I had uh, studied it pretty intensely in high school and therefore... Um, you know, I wouldn't say it when I first arrived, I was fluent, but I could certainly get by. And I was taking all my courses in French and we were asked to read 700 page uh, novels in French. So it was a good immersion program, except that, of course, my classes were with other Americans and that's never a good way to, to learn mm. a language. Um, but my reaction to Paris, of course, is just as you would expect. I was just a, a girl from a small town in Maine and I had only been to uh, I did go away to high school to Phillips Exeter Academy but I only knew the tame green campuses of New Hampshire and Connecticut and never lived in any big city before so for a girl from that background it was really kind of um a bit well it was a dream it was a beautiful kind of an exquisite uh, surreal experience of walking through these beautiful streets um, seeing the beautiful bridges, the architecture, the neighborhoods. But at the same time, I like to remind people that this was the era before any kind of internet or cell phones or anything. So I felt very um, isolated and very alone. And even though I made friends on my program, very few of us actually even had telephones in our meager student quarters. And so um, we did a lot of things on our own. Sometimes we had the unlikely um, chance of finding a friend at home, but we'd have to jump on a bus and try mm. to find them. Or we'd have to make a plan the way people did in the olden days. Right. And you know what that's like. Sometimes that backfires. So that, that kind of builds up to the reason that I was so ready to have more in my life. Right. And why I started to feel really, you know, um, lonely and depressed and a, a bit isolated walking through those very gray streets of Paris in the winter. And well, that's when I, yeah. I kept thinking about, uh, as I was reading your book, I kept hearing the, the music that it's stereotypical when you're walking on a French street. And I've been to France, Paris a couple of times. And yeah. I kept thinking of that. And, you know, the, the bread in the oven and, and the bakeries and all that. But the way you describe it, it can be a very lonely existence, when, particularly when you're a foreigner um, and you're getting accustomed and inured to the to the surroundings. But uh, you're also a little girl at heart, and you're still a little girl. You look amazing, by the way. You haven't aged a bit. But you you are, uh, in, in a sense, dreaming of that almost mythical Prince Charming. And when you think French, if you're a female uh, with any aspirations to, to find romance, when you think France, you think, oh, the romance is around every corner, eh? 
Well, <laughs> Pardon I have me. to say, I was, no, that was funny, very funny. I have to say that um, my greatest fear is that people would read the synopsis of this book and think, oh, God, this sounds so cliche. And fortunately, not one person came away thinking that because it, it wasn't that story. <clears throat> it wasn't, in other words, the innocent uh, right. American girl being taken advantage of by the older Frenchman. I have a, I have a cat making noise here. Sorry Cats that. do that. That's okay. It's all um, part of the experience. <laughs> but, um, but I do have to stress that part of the reason, it's not so much just being in a foreign country, but when I see 20-year-old kids nowadays uh, don't know what life was like before they could be constantly connected to everyone they knew at the touch of a button with where their cell phones and their instant texts and their emails and internet. I mean, there was nothing for me to connect to in my little maid's room there. Um, and so that's one of the reasons. I mean, I never even spoke to my parents. Every three weeks, maybe I would make a call <sighs> home. But, um, you know, internet would have changed everything. But in a way, I don't wish that experience had been any different than it was because there's something so acutely um, sensitive and um, poetic, really, mm. about being on one's own in such a beautiful city. Yeah, no, I, I love that uh, discussion of getting around. I mean, you, you get the metro, you get the cabs, and uh, eventually you get a ride from the individual we're going to talk about. But <laughs> uh, getting around the cafes, the meeting, the actual speaking, it doesn't matter whether you're speaking broken English or broken French, you're speaking to somebody, you're actually in their face, which is so rare these yeah. days. So we're talking about Paris Blue, and... Um, before we get to the crux of the story, uh, let's talk about the title because uh, I love the cover of the book, which, of course, has uh, the, the Tour de Fall, of course, right there, the Eiffel Tower. But it's Paris blue, and some might think of this as as a positive or a negative, or how does it relate to your uh, attitude after finishing the book? And did you come up with the title first or at the end? Well, that's actually a very long story in itself. I don't know how long you wanted to talk to me today or whether I should be brief here or not. Uh, but as I, long as it takes to fly from here to Paris and there's no SST, so go ahead. Take as much time okay. as you need. Okay. Well, as I, I don't think I mentioned yet. I mean, I, I mentioned briefly that this story has been lingering in the corridors of my psyche for about 40 years. So as you can imagine, it has gone through many versions and iterations, and this was not always the title. I know that when people hear the title Paris Blue, so many people before reading the book say, oh, I love the title, I love the title. And I believe that they think it's because blue connotes a kind of a sadness and a kind of isolation. And this is very true. However, there's another meaning to the Paris Blue title. And I'm on the fence about whether to divulge it or whether to keep it as a surprise. I might mention it now because, of course, I want people to read it and um, I want your listeners to be intrigued. But I also want, I don't want them to miss out on the experience of going, oh, now I get it, which probably happened to you, I hope. Jordan. It did. It did. But I, I will just say that there is more than one meaning to the Paris Blue title. Oh, I'll just tell you. Um, the, um, the man that I meet eventually in a chorus that I joined to help me connect somehow and find some connection in my life, some, some, filling, some way to fill the void of loneliness when I was 
wandering around the streets. I joined a chorus, and then I had a love at first sight experience with a man in the bass section of the chorus. And when I, after I met him, um, he needed to learn English, so we started sitting in all the parks and cafes of Paris, and we read books and poetry, and I tried to help him learn English. And one day I discovered that he was colorblind and that he could only see a certain shade of blue. Mm-hmm. So hence comes that title. It becomes a metaphor later on in the book for something else. Yes. I won't tell we won't, we won't spoil uh, every every surprise. But no, you know, the first thing I thought of, and this is me because of my craziness, is I thought of that famous line from the greatest American film ever, Casablanca. Uh, oh, yeah. The Germans wore gray, you wore blue. That's all I could think about was Ingrid Bergman. Oh, wow. And the... I, I'm so happy you brought that yeah, up. Yeah, I, I took that as a positive. I completely so. forgot that. <laughs> well, yeah. that's why you have uh, trivia wonks oh, like I, me here. I, I should tell you, though, that um, the original title... Okay, so pic- picture this. It was, you know, I started it at age 22, just two years after I had met this man... Um, after this relationship was over and I was 22 years old and moved back to Boston, as you remember in the book, I, I mentioned that I wrote down every detail that I re- had recalled from that those first 18 months. And back then, I had an idea that I wanted to write a book about this, but it was called something entirely different. It was called Lilies That Fester, and that's from a Shakespeare sonnet. Mm. And that stayed in my mind for about 10 or 20 years. And then... I changed it to a certain shade of blue because that's what he told me he could see. Right. I, he couldn't see reds and greens, but he could see a certain shade of blue. And I loved that title until the Fifty Shades of Grey book came out. <laughs> and then I knew I had to change the yeah. title. And finally, finally, I came up with Paris Blue, which is the much, much better title anyway, because people love books that have the word Paris in it. Anyway, it right. denotes immediately oh. tells them something. And then I found this amazing artist who's a friend of mine who did that beautiful, beautiful cover, which I think tells people a bit about what the book is going to feel like. Absolutely. We're talking with Julie Skolnick, and on the front cover of her book, Paris Blue, a quote from someone you might know, uh, the confluence of first love with becoming an artist makes this memoir special. John Irving. Very impressed. Very impressed. Um, first love. Okay. You're, what, 19, 20 years old. You see this gentleman from across the rehearsal hall at um, at a choral rehearsal. He's yeah. older, and it turns out his, his experience in life is a little different. He's married, but not quite married, so to speak. His name is Luke. And did you believe... Do you believe firmly now that there is such a thing as first love uh, now that you've experienced it? We all sort of have puppy love at times, but... Well, you probably mean to ask me, do I believe... There are two things in this book. One is a kind of a love at first sight element. To okay, it. That, that's what I meant. Love at first yeah, sight. Let me be clear. I absolutely believe that that can exist. People laugh at it because I don't think everyone has had that experience. Um, many people believe that that's fantasy and only in books and movies. But I can firmly say that when I saw this person from afar, I could not stop. I could not reel in, reel in my, my obsession and um, my feelings for him. And then when I finally saw him up close, we brushed past each other after one of the concerts 
it was literally as if I had been tapped, uh, tapped by a magic wand or had drunk some kind of mythical love potion. <laughs> and um, it was, it, it just became more and more potent. There was nothing I could do to stop it. So I, I know that it's difficult for some people to believe that that actually exists, but I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that that it's a true thing. And then the other element to this book is that, yes, I believe that when you're young and it's your first experience and it's very, very powerful and very romantic and very passionate, and then in it's it ends very suddenly and dramatically and almost violently, mm. um, then I believe that that has capacity to bury itself into your innermost corner of your being and very difficult to get over for your entire life even. It should be noted that you are a very happily married lady with a beautiful family. Uh, you, yes. you you are thoroughly 100% vibrant and alive and well, and yet this was a cathartic project for you. It was obvious from the beginning. Um, talk a little bit about that early period of the relationship. You're in France, you're young, you know, really young, 20 years old, studying and you don't have a penny to your name or a franc to your name at those days. And you're you're connecting with this gentleman who's very uh, standoffish at first. I mean, very yes. slow to reciprocate. Talk a little bit about yes. those early days. Okay, sure. You're a good interviewer, Jordan. Um, I was wondering how you were going to handle this, but you're doing such a good job. Well, thank you. Um, well, let's see. So the, the, the interesting juxtaposition is this young American girl, but also one that's quite ebullient, same personality really that I have now. I was, of course, a little more shy, but I was um, so different from this very reserved Frenchman that I met. The reason that he didn't fit the stereotype is that he wasn't really trying to court me at all. We, we were, he was trying to fight whatever was going on in either of our, in, in, between us really, mm. because he knew that it wasn't proper. He was married. I was under the impression, and, and I still am, that back at the beginning, he um, there was not very much to his marriage. He was um, they were not living together. He hadn't seen his wife in six months. There was, however, a three-year-old child involved, and so for at the beginning, I said, "Well, I'm that that is not in my repertoire. I will never let something happen with somebody like this who's not available." But of course, what happened is that we were in Paris, and I started helping him learn English in cafes, and then the and then we sat next to each other during three Beethoven's ninth concerts, and we sat next to each other on stage. And there was something about the fact that we shared music so profoundly, and then the fact that we were sharing poetry together, and the fact that we were in one of the most beautiful cities in the world and sitting in these parks and cafes. All three of those elements just were uh, irresistibly putting us together. Mm. You know, we fell under each other's charms. and. There was nothing I could do to fight it. So, um, the, hence, you know, so that's what the rest of the story is about. Right. And how, and how it, you know, how. As I said, there's an arc, and we won't, we won't spoil it for readers. I guarantee you, though, uh, it, you'll turn the page wanting to know what's coming next. There is a return to the States. There's decades that go by and various encounters along the way. But there's one thing that I wanted to bring up, and I don't think it was a term of art back in the 70s or 80s, but the term wingman, if you know what that means, in, in 
today's parlance, that's when a gentleman has a friend, a male friend, who comes along to sort of, uh, you know, help out. Well, in this case, uh, Luke, the, the gentleman that you were in love with for a while, um, has this guy with Philippe, I believe his name was. Philippe, yes. Yeah. And I, I wanted to strangle, well, both of them, but I wanted to strangle Philippe more so because uh, I know what it's like, you know, to, to be in, in my early days, to be with someone that I really wanted to be with and her best friend, her Ethel Mertz from upstairs was along for the ride. Talk a little bit with us about what that was like and how frustrating it was at times to play second fiddle to Philippe. Oh, you are so cute. Okay, well, <laughs> what happened is um, Philippe just uh, got, I don't want to give too much weight or, or get or digress too much either. But um, at one point during this long separation, after we met in Paris, I went back to finish my, my senior year at Wesleyan. And Luke and I were trying to figure out ways to see each other. So his a law firm that he was going to join was going to send him to the States, but only accompanied by the guy he was going to work for in New York. So they came and spent a week at my college with me. Imagine two annoying Frenchmen who never separated and coming to every class and lecture with me and every rehearsal. <laughs> and so um, it was very clear that this friend of Luke's really didn't want him to deepen his relationship with this 20-year-old American flutist that he wanted Luke to remain married to the much more respectable um, doctor right. from a from a political family or something like that. But it, I'm so glad that you understood just to what point it was um, oh. frustrating. It was it was exceedingly fr- in a fun way when you're a reader. I mean, it wasn't fun for you, but it was fascinating <laughs> to see that. Uh, again, we're going to stay away from plot points, but I will ask you to comment on. What happens in relationships uh, sometimes, sometimes, and unfortunately more often than not, is communication just totally breaks down. And that silent treatment was the way you describe it is so artful, but it's so painful. And yeah. and that was to me the the biggest moment for you to realize I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. And when you stand up to somebody who doesn't treat you well. Uh, there's applause from the reading audience. So share yes. with us your thoughts on yes, there is a there is a point where you make that decision. Oh, my God. Well, the the, the part that was so shocking is that the the uh, juxtaposition, the reason it was such a, tr- a traumatic ending for this 22 year old girl is that the letters he had been writing me for two years were so intensely personal and romantic really it was like the best french poets you'd ever read rambeau baudelaire beautiful beautiful poems you know and i don't to this very day i don't know i don't believe that those were phony made-up letters but there was the real luke that came across and again i'm telling too much of the story when he finally got to the states two years into our relationship he emerged as a person i i didn't recognize at all and he was so trapped and so unable to connect to anything around him and his surroundings, including me. So I, I saw a side of him I had never seen before. And it was so hurtful and so mm. shocking. But fortunately, I had enough mental health to know that I was not going to put up with it. Mm. 
Now I've given away the whole plot, but no, 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 no. There because there are twists that we haven't even gotten to, and we'll leave those alone. I, I was yeah. just going to suggest though that when people have a sense of uh, personality based on culture and geography. You know, the Frenchman as the suave, debonair, only cares about one thing, if you know what I mean. We really, I think what I realized, again, uh, in life and in reading this book, Julie, is that we're all basically the same with the same wants, desires, flaws, issues, no matter what language we speak. That, yeah. that was a takeaway for me, that this guy... Yeah could have been in Cincinnati, <laughs> you know, because it, it's a human condition we're dealing with. I think you touched on something, though, which is one of the reasons I think that he was so paralyzed when he finally got to Boston is that he was somebody who could not exist without the power of speech. And he it was his raison d'etre, if you know what that means. Yes. It was just it was how he lived in the world because he was a lawyer. He loved the French language. He was a connoisseur of forming sentences and when he got to the states it was like the rug was pulled out from underneath him and he just couldn't function That's so so the that. letters that are in the book that you reproduce they're in italics and they're brilliantly written those were in french and you translated them Yes. Right. That's what I thought. Amazing. I I think if guys want to buy this book just to impress their girlfriends they can swap a few phrases here and there and uh, come off looking very, very good. Just so people know, um, your life is active and busy and you've got great kids and, oh, and yeah. music has I mean, been a big part of your life. Um, my, husband, my husband laughs because, you know, he's had to put up with this extra member of the family for about 30 years. And um, he's very happy that it's finally behind me. Um, and he likes to say to people, well, a lot of people say, oh, Michael, you came across, by the way, to the listeners out there, you do see me, um, as Jordan mentions, the book covers three decades and has an arc, and it does follow me into middle age and um, having children and meeting my current and only husband and the true love of my life. But um, he gets only about three pages, so he likes to... <laughs> make fun of that fact. But that tells me a lot about this guy, your husband, because he's a he's the kind of guy where he he's confident and secure enough having this wonderful woman in his life and uh you can write about all this stuff and Paris and cafes and romance and he's cool with it. I love that. Exactly. Is he a musician at all? Does he play any music? No. Well no, it's just for fun he can play guitar, but he's a physicist. He's a science guy. That which it's fantastic. It's the a, a left brain, right brain kind of thing, right? So you 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 went you went the right way. I did that with my wife too. I'm uh, I think I'm right. Is that the creative side? The yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we share that. Well, I, I I really congratulate you. And one more question on a on a technical basis. As a writer, um, I've done a little bit of writing, not nearly as as much as I'd like to. Putting a book together of this context of a memoir where there's so much information that you want to get right, but also it's done in a way that's beautifully pro prolific as prose. What background did you have as a, as a writing uh, student? I mean, or is it just a natural outgrowth of your talent? You're so sweet because to this very day, I, I feel a bit like a fraud. I, I think when I went into the bookstore to sign some books, I heard the lady at the counter say, oh, um, the author has come in, and I, I looked behind me to see who she was talking about, <laughs> because it really is my my one and only. It's not that I haven't written. I've, I've never written a book, obviously. I've written little essays, maybe. You know, as an artistic director of a music series, 
um, I have written my messages from the director for 25 years before every concert, trying to, I, I incorporate little anecdotes, I tell little stories, I tell why these pieces are being programmed. But beyond that, really nothing. And um, so therefore, I'm so flattered and so touched when people say that I love the writing. I find it's just very, very simple writing. It doesn't have any big words. It's just, um, it's just really from the heart and yeah. from the, the memories that I have and about the things that are most important to me in my life. You know, memory, the role memory plays in our lives and, and how it makes us um, think about the future. And, so, and the soundtrack is beautiful. I mean, I, I, I know that you share at the end, I believe, yes, uh, yes, a, a yes. glossary of the uh, the music that you talk about. Yes, and not only the list of pieces, but if anyone um, is reading the book and they happen to see a little footnote next to one of the pieces, they just go to my author page and you can click on any of the pieces and it'll bring you to a YouTube performance of it. Because I wanted people to actually hear the music that I was talking about since words have never been able to um, describe music properly. Um, and oh, and just, just in case anyone's interested and in listening to this, um, the same website that has my uh, all the information of the book, it's just my name.com, julieskolnick.com, mm -hmm. also has a, um, so it has all the music and it has um, a book trailer too that I hope will grab people's attention and make them want to read it. Uh, I want to mention two things. One, um, another remark from another author. At, again, back of the book promos here. This one's brilliantly, brilliantly said, Paris Blue is written with the tender romanticism of Wordsworth and the devastating realism of Flaubert, a dazzling love letter to a life lived in music. That's Linda Catherine Cunning author of Memory Slips. Boy, you can't get much better than that. That's awesome. I know. I love that, too. Thank you. That's Jordan. awesome. Uh, well, Julie, congratulations. Um, I hope you write more. I know that people will read this and be sh taken aback by the storyline and the, the fact that it, it is a page turner. It's a, it's a memoir first love, but it's a lot more than that. Aww. So, Julie, thank you and good luck going forward. Jordan, thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciated this talk. One terrific book, Paris Blue, a memoir of first love by Julie Skolnick. Couldn't resist playing a little music reminding us of Paris. Do check out the book, available everywhere. And also you can follow Julie on her musical adventures at mistralmusic.org. Thanks as always to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry and everyone at Chark Productions in Boston, and to you for bringing us well above 60,000 downloads with over 100 countries represented. Appreciate you listening and rating and reviewing the podcast. Find out more at my website, jordanrich.com. Until next time, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.